Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in a portion of Scripture that is confronting all of us to consider our view of ourselves and our estimation of how important we are. We're being called to consider how big we are in our own eyes. And this whole section is calling us to humility. Humility. I want to begin by Reading in chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's help. We pause, O God, in humility to plead with you to be at work here this morning and each heart and mind, including mine, gathered here in this place. 
the teaching of our Lord Jesus here again is, is quite clear. It's not very difficult to understand. What we need is something that we do not have ourselves. And that is power. Power to perceive the truth, to examine our own hearts, and to be humbled. And so we ask God that your own Holy Spirit, whom you have given, who ultimately gave us these scriptures, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be active here this morning. Go where you must go. Please, we pray and plead, do not refrain from your blessed work of humbling us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Unforgiveness and bitterness of heart is a terrible condition. It has impacts upon an individual, upon his or her family, extended family. Unforgiveness and bitterness can render a church perpetually a sham and a mere shell of supposed spirituality. Unforgiveness is terrible. In the individual heart, it corrupts it. It eats away at joy, it, like acid, etches the soul, leaves you an uncharitable, unkind person, easily irritated, fractures families, fractures marriages. As a pastor, one of the most frequent pastoral issues, and you won't be surprised by this, that whether it's in marriage counseling or, or other instances, is the issue of unforgiveness. It is epidemic. It is, it is, the, it is the true pandemic, unforgiveness. We know it's not right. We know it's a problem. But many of us perhaps don't know exactly how to forgive, Jesus does give us some inkling of indication here of how that can take place. But especially this, por- this morning in the text, he makes adamantly clear that forgiveness is a very serious matter. In fact, forgiveness and unforgiveness can be the difference between an eternity in heaven and an eternity in hell. You can try to qualify, explain away Jesus' words in verse 35, but we dare not do so. The most gentle, kind, gracious, loving, truth-speaking man that has ever walked the earth warned us and all who hear My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Wow. He has our attention. 
But I want to, for a moment, just again draw your attention to the larger context. This whole chapter is directing us to the subject of humility and the importance of humility. The chapter began, I remind you, in verse 1 with the disciples talking amongst themselves and coming to Jesus and asking him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Their hubris, their pride, their arrogance was so evident, it was obnoxious to Jesus, to his soul, I'm sure. But his patience is, is modeled here as he lovingly, gently, but firmly tries to instruct his men in the nature of pride and humility, the importance of humility. He's informed them and us in chapter 18, verse 2. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's informed them, he's informed us that if we lack humility, the, the humility of a child, that a child that knows that he or she is dependent, knows that they can't make their own way, knows that they can't provide for themselves, knows that they are not strong, unless we become like little ones, recognizing the truth of who we are before God, helpless to save ourselves, we don't have to be worrying about whether we're one of the greatest in the kingdom like the disciples were. We need to be thinking about, am I even in the kingdom? Humility, I've said this several times, is the most foundational and necessary character trait of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. No humility, no entrance into the kingdom. Because the bar, if you will, will not be raised for entrance into the kingdom. All, without exception, must bow to enter in. Humility is required. And then Jesus went on to, in chapter 18, to issue a series of woes. Woe, verse 7, to the world because of its stumbling blocks. He gives severe warnings to, to harming one of his little ones, this precious phrase that he uses to describe those who are believers, those who are citizens of the kingdom. They are little ones. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are a little one. We have been encouraged to embrace that as an identity because that's who we are. We are little ones in the kingdom. And as little ones, we might think that we are vulnerable, and we are. But here, our Lord stands up and says, gives a warning both to the world and to those who are in the church, be very, very careful how you relate to those little ones. He gives some of the most severe warnings, guarding us, warning us against putting up a stumbling block to to any of God's little ones. God cherishes them. He cherishes them greatly. Verse 14, it's not his will that any one of these little ones should perish. Now that doesn't mean that, that we are never to just not ever confront one of his little ones. And so Jesus in verses 15 through 20 gives instructions about how to confront sin 
But in love, it begins in a private way. In love, it begins assuming the best. If we are little ones in the kingdom, we know that we sin. We know our capability for erring. So we're not shocked when there's a brother or sister in Christ who sins against us or against someone else. We go to them in private. We show them gently their fault in private. And we pray that they'll listen to us. And Jesus says, if they've listened, you've won your brother. Carry on. If there is no listening, if there is a refusal to admit to sin that is clear and obvious, even when there's two or three witnesses who can identify the sin, the attitude, even when it's told to the church, Jesus is very adamant that that individual is to be excommunicated. He or she is to be removed. Why? Because it's been revealed that they are proud. And the church of Christ is the house of the humble. It's the Lord's house. No one else's. He is Lord. He is head. He is king. His rules go here. I've almost thought sometimes that it just wouldn't go over well, but but um, it'd be really helpful, I think, especially in modern evangelical churches, if there was a sign as you come into the foyer, because we're such a self-consumed culture, if there was a sign that said in the foyer as you come in, Jesus rules here, not you. Because everywhere else we go in the culture, the culture tells us, you are what we are here for. You are the almighty consumer. What can we do? And of course, we want to welcome people to come, but we, that, is, that welcoming is within limits, within boundaries. In other words, we all are under Christ. So then, the question comes, well, if, if we do go to our brother in Christ who sins against us or against others, if they do listen to us and we have won our brother, uh, we are to receive them back and Peter then, this raises a question in his mind. Well, okay, Jesus, uh, how many times? How many times? Um, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I mean, how many times do I go through this process necessarily of going and pointing out a fault and if they are listened to me and they ask my forgiveness, how many times should I do that? Up to seven times? Peter thinks he's being generous. Even here, again, it's evident that Peter has a, a, a quite a, a view of himself. Magnanimous Peter. Generous Peter. Lord, up to seven times? I mean, apparently Peter thinks that, that, is, that is outlandish. And Jesus responds in verse 22 with hyperbole. The point is not literally that you start counting, you know, with your spouse. Okay, that's one. We got 400 and whatever to go. 70 times 70 times 7. The point is, you keep forgiving your brother or sister in Christ. The, the principle, really, if you want to keep your finger in Matthew 18, turn with me for a moment to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So as those who have been chosen of God, 
mean, that's humbling, isn't it? I, 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 who started this? God. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, here's the principle, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I don't know about you, but the Lord forgives me not once, not seven, not 490. There is no counting of how many times the Lord forgives me. And we are to forgive one another as his little ones in the same way that he forgives us. And so Jesus, back to Matthew 18, responds to Peter's question with hyperbole. And I, before I miss it here, one of the indications that we are proud is when we are really caught up with technicalities. Seven times? When, when we are really caught up with the, the process, or even, even back to the disciplinary process, when we, are, when we are even more focused on the process than we are the principles, the heart, it's a pretty good indicator we're proud. And so in order to underscore what he's just said to Peter, Peter's Peter's again in shock. He's processing what Jesus just said. 70 times 7? What? Without giving him an answer, an opportunity to talk, because Peter will. Um, Jesus gives an illustration, a parable. And we're going to walk down through it, but I want to just take a moment just to instruct you in how to study parables. One thing, listen, don't overanalyze this. Don't read into it the, the Lord or the king is like this and, and this slave is like this and this. You, could, you can break this down and you can make up all kinds of stuff. Jesus has only one point and the point is summarized for us in verse 35. That's it. So a parable is a story and illustration most often to make one single point. Well, Jesus tells a story, tells a parable, and it's composed of three scenes. Three scenes. In the first scene, we find in verses 23 through 27, we find a, a man who has an unpayable debt. He is a slave, and, and that should not be surprising to us. Uh, some um, estimates are that in the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, some 25 or a quarter, 25% or a quarter of people were, were servants or slaves. It was just common. And there was various levels of enslavement, of course. There was, there was the more brutal forms that we think of when we think of slavery in the South. It's just appalling. But there were forms in which a slave sometimes was, was basically the manager of, of a king's business, of a, of a lord's business. And so evidently, this slave, this man, is a, has a very high position. He has a great deal of, of responsibility. He is responsible for vast sums of his king or lord's monies and accounts. He's basically the wealth manager for the lord, for the king that Jesus refers to here. 
The king has been allowing this man to manage his accounts maybe for years, for decades, but for whatever reason, he comes to a point where, verse 23, the king wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. This slave has been in a privileged position managing the king's wealth, and with that, he's been able to use some of the wealth to make investments of his own on the side. Records have been kept, and the king reasonably decides, okay, you know what, I'm at a point where I'd like to call in those debts. And when, verse 24, he began to settle them, one, this, this one slave, this one man, one who owed the king, 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, I've never been paid in talents, and you haven't either. What are talents? And you can maybe look in your Bible, your study Bible. Maybe there's a little note there to the side. But 10,000 talents is a vast sum of money. One commentator estimated that it would take something like 190 3,000 years for the man to pay back this debt because in light of what, the, what we know of the average daily pay in those days, the, these are massive amounts. One commentary in, um, this, this was 2010, was estimating that in 2010 dollars, that the, town, the debt here that's spoken of is in like the 9.6 billion category. So take that, that's, you know, multiply. You're talking about gazillions. That's, that would be a good way to think of this. This is, this is gazillions, bazillions. This is, this is what kids refer to as just in those kinds of terms, and maybe we do too. This is an astronomical, in the like trillion dollar kind of realm The point that Jesus is making, here's the key, an unpayable debt. This is an unpayable debt. It's not possible for the man to pay it. Unless he actually has this this cash in the bank and it's, you know, equity that he can liquidate and turn into cash like that and pay it to the king. He, He doesn't. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have any of this gazillions. And he must repay it. So it's unpayable debt. It's not possible. He could live for 190, 200,000 years, work every single day, get a full wage, and he still would not have paid back the king. It's an unpayable debt. Nonetheless, the man, verse 25, since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children. This is very common in Roman Empire days. Okay, you don't have the money to pay, to pay up your debt. There's at least the king can get something out of it. I mean, he can't recover hardly anything, but he might as well recover the funds from selling the man, his wife, and his children into slavery. And he'll get maybe a a decent price in the market. It it won't be much. It'll be, be pittance. But at least he'll get something out of this raw deal. So the man and his family is going to be sold into slavery to repay the debt. Verse 26, so the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before the king, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. There are several things I want you to note here. The man is desperate. 
The man knows he's desperate. He falls down on his face before this king. I mean, he's, he's got no option. He has to prostrate himself, which prostrate is on your knees, on your face, hands out, laid out before this king, before him, and just begging him, pleading him to forgive him and to not sell them into slavery. He's right to do so. He has no other option. But even in verse 26, there's a little hint that this is a proud man. Where am I getting that from? Because he has the nerve to say, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. No, you won't. You don't have that ability. You proud liar. You do not have the ability to come up with a trillion dollars from starting from zero. Not happening. You don't have enough lifetimes to pay that. You cannot pay that debt. This is one of the indications of when we're pride. When we're proud, we're likely to say we can and will do all kinds of things. Because we're quite full of ourselves and quite impressed with our own ability, with our own ability to do this, that, or the other thing. One of the ways we know we're proud is if we're always saying, oh yeah, I I can, I can, I will, I will, I can, I can, I will, I will. No, you can't. And no, you won't. Uh, Of course, we have to, in our day-to-day lives, we have to say, I'll do that. That's not arrogance. That's responsibility. It's kindness saying to, you know, your spouse or your coworker, I'll, I'll take care of that. That's good. That's good. But one of the indications of pride and arrogance is a person who is not in need, but can always come up on their own with what needs to be done or what they need. He begs, he pleads, and he promises, I'll pay you back. Notice that the Lord, verse 27, of the king of that slave felt compassion and released him. What's, what is the root of the forgiveness in the king? There's no indication here that he listens to what the man says. I'll pay you back. And the king says, oh, maybe I'll get my money back. There's no indication. The king knows the man can't pay it back. He knows. And yet, the man prostrate before him, pleading, doubtless weeping, the man's wife, the man's children. And in view of this display of humility, the heart of the king is moved with compassion. And verse 27, he forgives him the unpayable debt. The unpayable debt is paid. And that for the king is a costly forgiveness, isn't it? That's a costly forgiveness. He's moved with compassion. He makes a decision. I am going to forgive you of that debt, but don't lose sight of it. The Lord, the king there, is paying 
himself out of his own pocket the gazillions that this slave owes him. Oh, it's, it's not a cheap grace. It's a costly grace. In this case, in the billions and trillions, the king takes that debt on himself and pays it. And so scene one, we have an unpayable debt, an urgent plea, and a costly forgiveness. Now Jesus, as he tells the illustration, the parable, he moves to scene two in verses 28 to 30. The man leaves the presence of the king hearing this joyful news, but in verse 28, he went out. The, the indication here is, is, this is this is not like down the road. This is, this is likely like the first day, the way that Jesus is telling it. The man has just been prostrate before the king. The man has just been released from enslavement. A infa- unfathomable, unpayable debt has just been paid. He walks out of there, and as he's going back to his house, perhaps along the street, he runs into one of his fellow slaves, verse 28 who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, that's not chump change. A denarii was about one day's wage. But this is a reasonable debt. This is not the unpayable debt that the man had with the king. This this debt, you get the idea here, this forgiven slave runs into another fellow servant, fellow slave, who happens to owe him about four months' wages, 100 days or so. It's a lot of money, but it's reasonable. It's, it's, a, it's a payable amount of money. It's a kind of debt that you could see that someone could get into if they fell upon hard times and we're talking in the terms of thousands of dollars in our, in our kind of monetary system. So he finds this fellow slave who owes him about four months' wages, nothing in comparison to the debt that the man owed the king. He seized him. Notice the violent response. Began choking him. I mean, he just in arrogance and pride, treats this man as though he is less than a human being, saying, pay back what you owe. So, notice the similarity of the language. It is intentional. Between verse 29 and verse 26. The fellow slave acts in the same way that the first slave acted before the king. He falls to the ground, begins to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. This is humility. This is earnestness. And the man is not necessarily lying. This is a debt that actually can be paid back. This is, this is a debt that can actually be paid back. This is not presumption. This is not arrogant. This is a big debt, but this is a reasonable debt. It is actually foreseeable that he can begin to pay this debt back and that it can be, it can be done in a relatively amount of, short amount of time. Pleads with him, prostrates himself, and prays. Have patience with me and I will repay you. But 
He was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Well, it's kind of hard to pay back what you owe when you can't work and you're in prison. There's no way for him to make money. And the only way, actually, is if this man's poor wife and maybe kids can come up with the money. This is a disturbing scene. A reasonable debt and an unreasonable response, to say the least. Well, then Jesus moves to a third scene. We're upset as we hear it. Doubtless, Peter and the disciples were upset as they heard this, this account of this arrogant slave who, just forgiven of his massive debt, throws into prison another slave who owes him a comparatively small amount of money, treats him with contempt and violently abuses him physically, emotionally, unjustly throws him in prison with cruelty to a place where the man cannot repay. And so, verse 31, when the fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. That also could mean that they were deeply angered, as they ought to be. Deeply upset, deeply grieved. And so they determined, you know what? We heard what the king forgave this man. The king needs to know What's going on here? And so they went and reported to their Lord, this is the same king, all that happened. And then what a scene we have in verses 32 through 34. I'm going to read the words again. Then summoning him, this first man who was forgiven the great debt, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I know we use wicked here in New Hampshire and in Maine to, to mean different things. Um, that was wicked cool. That was wicked good ice cream. I get it. It's fine. I use that sometimes. But our culture doesn't believe anymore that there is anything true as such true as wicked, like truly wicked. That is the right word here. You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the way I had mercy on you? It's obvious to everyone. And all the king does is tell the truth and deal with this wicked servant in justice. And what is justice? Verse 34, moved with anger, the Lord handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Remember the size of the debt that he owed the king? How long before he pays off that while he's in prison? Never. There's probably here an allusion to the eternality of hell. We all have a sin debt against God that we cannot pay, and we sorely underestimate the size of that sin debt. 
The reason why hell is eternal is because our sin is against an eternal and infinitely good God. But there's no more pleading here. There's no more forgiveness. There's no more compassion. It's judgment time. And in verses 31 to 34, it is a just judgment. The king is not unreasonable. It is what the man deserves. His sin is despicable, the sin of unforgiveness. It is particularly despicable because he was a forgiven man that refused to forgive others. He was a man who was forgiven much, but refused to forgive others little. So Jesus makes clear, in case anyone should protest lack of clarity. Verse 35, my heavenly father. Notice he says, my heavenly father here. He's, He's not... As he said, he doesn't say your heavenly father, because those who are truly the little ones of God, those who are the humble, will never experience the judgment of God. But he says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. One of the characteristics of a true Christian is that you are a forgiving forgiving person. And if you are not a forgiving person, you're not a Christian. Because only those who are apart from Christ can possibly be handed over, per se, to the torturers. In other words, can experience the fires of hell forever to pay back a sin debt they cannot pay. Forgiveness is very, very serious. For a few moments here, at the close of this sermon, I want to take a few moments here. We then have some very practical questions that we need to consider together. Jesus has our attention, doesn't he? He has our attention. He has my attention. He has our attention. This is this is serious. It doesn't get more serious than this. And we dare not say in verse 35 that Jesus is using hyperbole there. I'm taking him at face value. I think he's looking the disciples square in the eyes, and I think he's just looking at them almost with pity and compassion. And partly what's frightening about Jesus' face is that there's just a resolute This is just, I'm just telling you guys the truth. My heavenly father will do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother from his heart. Don't underestimate the resolve of God in his justice. Don't do it. So I want to look with you at the nature of forgiveness the foundation of forgiveness, and the key to forgiveness quickly. Because some of you are asking, you're recognizing, I have a real hard time with this. I, uh, you've been harboring bitterness against your spouse or against 
your parents or against someone in the church. Quickly and briefly this morning. The nature of forgiveness Jesus describes in verse 35. Notice that he says, from your heart. From the heart. It's, it's not a mere external technicality. It is an internal reality that you have released this person that sinned against you or offended you or someone you know and love. It is maintaining in your heart an attitude of I am not I am releasing them from payment of some kind of payment for the wrong that they did against me. Now in the very and remember some of some immediately are thinking well wait a minute you don't understand how bad it was against me or against someone I love or against my kids no I'm I'm aware of that And remember, Jesus is aware of it, and in the earlier part of Matthew 18, he spells out a very clear way for confronting sin. So forgiveness does not go light on sin. That's not what's going on here. But it is from the heart. That is the nature of forgiveness. It is from the heart. Which then raises the question, okay, well, if it's from the heart, how can I do that? Which moves to the the foundation of forgiveness, which is humility. We've already said this. But it's evident in Matthew 18, verse 32, the king says to the slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, verse 33, Should you not also? The king is pointing the wicked slave back to his view of himself. The wicked slave has a terribly evil view of himself. That somehow he is so lifted up, so proud in his heart, that somehow he thinks that he is due being forgiven of a debt he could not possibly pay. But somehow, because he's who he is, he is worthy of that forgiveness, but not this other fellow slave. The issue is arrogance. It's very hard But some of us need to recognize this morning, if we have harbored bitterness or a spirit of unforgiveness, at the root of it is an inflated view of ourselves. We're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Colossians 3, we saw it. Just as God has forgiven you. In other words, You have to first understand yourself as a man or woman that has had a sin debt that you could not possibly pay. You don't have a trillion dollar debt. You have an infinite debt where you have blasphemed, marred, and hated the one and only true God. You have not loved him as you ought. You have not served him as your creator. You have lived as though your life is your own. You have thought about yourself and you have been most concerned with your own concerns, with your own comfort. 
You have followed the lusts of your heart. You have lied when it is helpful for your cause. You have not loved others, even in your immediate family as you are. You've used other people for your own selfish gains. You've sinned against people made in the image of God. So your, all your sins and my sins are against this good and holy and infinitely glorious God. And all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a sin debt that is unpayable because it is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy and valuable God. You could spend a billion trillion years in purgatory and you will never ever pay because frankly you don't you are not worth enough you don't have the equity to pay for your sin debt against this holy God does that make sense we understand this in the legal system if somebody commits a heinous crime against an innocent child or an elderly person that was defenseless we don't care if the guy spends 75 years. We understand that even after he served all that time, he hasn't even begun to pay for the real magnitude of the crime. Why? Because by his disgusting, wicked behavior against this innocent, righteous person, he doesn't have, he doesn't have enough to lose to pay. And that's the condition all of us are in before God. I don't have any righteousness with which to pay for my sin debts. We are all guilty before God. And we must start with this. And we must start with prostrate before God. And we must have in our minds the nature of our sin against God. And that is the starting place of humility, of forgiveness. And if we can't forgive others, we have to work our way back to, I've got a pride problem. I think that somehow I'm in a category all my own. The nature of forgiveness, the foundation of forgiveness, and thirdly, and most precious, the key to forgiveness. What's the key to forgiveness? It's a blood-soaked cross. That's the key to forgiveness. That's it. Blood-soaked cross. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Suffered and paid the full debt of the wrath of God. I have been forgiven through the work of Christ of a sin debt I could not possibly pay. And it was of the will of God and of the compassion of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's the compassion of God. And if I have been forgiven by God in his compassion of such a sin debt. How can I not 
forgive others who sin against me. I mean, come on. Compared to my sin debt against God, when someone offends me or doesn't do things the right way or forgets something or maybe yells at me or maybe is grumpy or, or on and on it goes, all the petty things that we hold against other people. Compared to the sin debt against God, what is that? Because who am I anyways? The key to forgiveness is to remember the cross. And a very sobering reality along with that. Some of you are afraid, oh, but if I have that kind of attitude, if I'm that generous with forgiveness, and again, qualify, remember in Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't say that you just let everything go. Sin is to be confronted head on in Christ's church. And people are, in fact, to be removed from the church if they continue in willful sin. So this isn't going soft on sin or soft on evil. But when it comes to forgiving others who have sinned against us, some of us struggle because we think, well, it was really, really bad. And it probably was in some cases. In some of the cases, many cases where we struggle with unforgiveness, it wasn't petty. It was truly hurtful. It was truly wrong. It really was something that was awful and that hurts and that wounds and that has ongoing consequences. Sin is real and the offense of sin is real. But how can I be a forgiving man? How can I be, you be a forgiving woman? is by remembering a very sobering reality. That person who sinned against me, God saw it all. He doesn't miss anything. And if they truly did sin against me, they sinned against God ultimately because I'm made in the image of God. Their sin debt really isn't ultimately with me. It's, it's with God. And here's the sobering reality. That person who sinned against me those sins against me are accounted for in only one of two places. Either their sins will be counted as credited and accounted for on the cross, or God will see those sins paid in an eternity in hell. Nobody gets away with anything. There is not one sin, not one hurtful word, not one wrong deed that will go unaccounted for because God is God and God is holy and God is just. And so when you really factor that in and you remember, wow, this person's sins, they are either like me, prostrate before God and at the foot of the cross with the blood of Christ dripping down upon their head. How can I hold something against them when they have experienced the same forgiveness that I am experiencing? Either we have joy as being forgiven men and women at the foot of the cross or either God have mercy. They are going to pay for their sins against me in hell, which then turns my heart from anger and unforgiveness to actually a position of pity. This is a person who needs to be rescued. I want to close with these words again that are so encouraging in 1 Peter 5 verse 5. They're so encouraging because Peter, many, many years later, he's an old man 
It's been decades since he heard that story from Jesus. It's been many, many years. He thinks back to him asking with the disciples, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he just shakes his head in, in utter embarrassment and shame. And many years later, writing to churches spread throughout modern Turkey, to believers and churches there, he writes in 1 Peter 5, 5, to Christians, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Do you think he got Jesus' teaching? He got it. He never forgot it. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Oh, God, find us among the humble. Even before we pray for our debts to be paid, we pray change our heart because we are so dead by nature in our sins, so inflated in our view of ourselves that unless you by your spirit come and show us our sin and our pride, we will plunge ourselves into hell with our pride. So I pray for all here this morning. May you, O God, be pleased to humble us where we have been proud and self-sufficient. For those who have yet to trust in Jesus Christ truly in humility, may today be a day of prostrate pleading and calling upon you to be saved. May we all be humbled in view of your majesty, our sin, your compassion in Christ's cross. And help us, O God, in the context of this local church, that this would be your house, the house of the humble ones. Help some here today who understand that today they must release others in their lives, maybe their home, of a debt they've been holding in their heart for years. May today be a day of jubilee, of in Christ releasing sin debts, of taking up a forgiving heart, an attitude of forgiveness, even where there are instances where this sin is ongoing. Help us to entrust our cause and our case to you. And we pray, O oh God, have mercy and compassion upon those who sin against us. We pray as our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Christ's name.